when the board met to interview me this summer, they didn't ask many questions about theology. They had sermons and papers in their hands that pointed in general Buddhist and humanist theological directions. They had a lot on their minds and a short time to cover it all. Had they asked, do you think the Bible is inerrant or without error? I would have have to have replied, yes. Uh, The interview process might have come to a halt for a moment there. (laughs) Instead, I confess to this church this morning that I find the Bible to be flawless and unbeatable. For me, it's an inerrant reflection of the whole of humanity, flaws and all. With poetry and song, it captures the full spectrum of human greatness to depravity. It chronicles individual and collective longings and searches for meaning, for ultimacy, and for God. With astonishing efficiency, it rolls out delicious stories of familiar scenarios and schemes. If you think Dexter and uh, Walter White's, what's the name of that TV show? Are dark? Read some of the Bible. Oh my. Um, it, it describes every form of power, raging, dictatorial, violent, disarming, and compassionate. It is in an inerrant portrait of human nature in all its complexity. For example, the way the Bible tells the same stories more than once and from very different points of view captures human struggles that we have reconciling each other's perspectives. It is inerrant in its omissions. We carry deeply ingrained biases and experiences. No one person in this room will hear this sermon the same way or integrate our Sunday service together in the same way. We are not reliable witnesses. So transcribed and edited over a millennium and a half, the Bible is the ultimate work of a committee made up exclusively of men. It is the story from shepherds and farmers and tent makers and physicians and fishermen and priests, philosophers and kings, And its omissions are glaring, yet many have taken it to be a universal text that speaks for all. The voices of women and children, slaves, and the discarded are virtually missing. It ignores, censors, or could not know the complete set of human ideas at its time. Exactly these blind spots make it flawless in mirroring our own blind spots. It carries the same cocky sense of authority we all use to survive because we can only act out of the information and ego that we have. The Bible is inerrant as an example of a political document. 
It always has a point of view and works to be persuasive. The issues and, change and arguments change over the course of time throughout its different books and sections, but it always has spin. For example, there are four versions of the New Testament Gospels because each one was addressed to different communities trying to follow Jesus. Historical evidence suggests the author of Mark wrote for a Jewish group coping with the failure of the first Jewish revolt after Rome, against Rome. And then Matthew wrote for a Jewish community struggling with a form of Judaism dominating Jewish life at the time. And then Luke wrote for primarily Gentiles working to reconcile Christian beliefs with the demands of serving as good citizens of the Roman Empire. And the Gospel of John is a whole different thing. He's evoking and twisting familiar Jewish symbols in a move toward creating Christian reinterpretations and ultimately a separate Christianity. Together, these four Gospels in a contemporary setting might look like a single network covering key religious events by having Fox's Sean Hannity one hour and then Rachel Maddow the next, and then Rush Limbaugh, followed by Jon Stewart. That would be the four Gospels. There you go. The Bible's been through the ultimate editing process. It's been redacted, revised, translated, and copied thousands of times. It's like a carefully cut crystal or diamond with hundreds of facets this rich prism of fiction and fact shines flawless light on how humankind operates. It is virtually perfect in capturing our endless flaws. Now, those of you who are wordsmiths are likely grinding your teeth by my playing with the word inerrant in relationship to the Bible in this way. Generally, the term refers to the doctrine that the Bible in its original manuscripts, whatever those are, is accurate and totally free from error of any kind. Others call the Bible infallible, meaning there can be no errors. To millions, the very nature of its divine inspiration renders the Bible infallible, which means it cannot deceive us. It is inerrant, inerrant in that it is not false, mistaken, or defective. And so in my opinion, these demands of godly perfection actually rob the text of its power. Instead, as a religious people, Unitarian Universalists are called to examine the world and ourselves with a clear eye, mind, and heart. And so... There are profound lessons in the darkness and mistakes and omissions and um, just as there are lessons in the triumphs. So we get to step back from the Bible just as we get to step back from ourselves and as our, from our community and to see what is glorious and what is tragic. So this, pers- this church has some important projects coming up, so I suggest we turn to the Bible as one place for direction in how to proceed. 
we bring our free church understanding that revelation is never sealed. We remain open to new truths. So just as the Bible often retells the same stories for different social and political purposes, as like the New Testament in the Old Testament, you know that there are two versions of creation right up front in Genesis. The creation of the world and the first human, Adam. And that first version is a priestly version, and it asserts the fundamental goodness of the newly created world and of the even newer human. God says over and over, as my teenagers often would say, it's all good. (laughs) Later in Genesis, Jay or Yahweh, the source of storytellers there, retell creation emphasizing the limits of humans. They make very distinct separations between the divine and the human realms. And both these stories began as oral stories. They were eventually written down thousands of years later in 6th or 5th century BCE before the Common Era. And then some hundred years later, a scribe or chronicler tells the creation story in a completely third different way. And what this author does is recounts Israel's political and religious life from the beginning of human history to their new start after the exile from their homelands. And this version doesn't start in the beginning when God created. Instead, the book First Chronicles begins like this. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This first chapter of First Chronicles continues for 55 more verses of names and genealogy, then on for 309 more verses to the end of the 8th chapter. I'm sparing you, it's not exciting reading. But what it does is most powerful. It serves to reassemble all those who've been exiled, torn from their homes, families and tribes that have been split apart, and members sold into slavery, when the Jews were exiled from the ancient kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians. These names, these genealogies, have been knit back together so the dispersed people of Israel would remember where they came from and who they are. The list of names connects them to the very beginning of life. All of human history, starting with Adam, converges on King David and his temple priesthood. The tribe of Judah is placed squarely at the center of Israel. Each name has a story behind it of life and loss to never be forgotten. 
So linking each name together in this long chain clearly states the chronicler's theological conviction that Israel's bright future may be discovered through a careful analysis of its past. And it's this theological perspective that I want us at Hope to consider. The seeds of Hope's future are planted in its past. The past is the material we have to work with to mold and shape our coming years. And I'm, I'm not qualified to reconstruct Hope's past. But no one person is. The project is a collective one. So in upcoming weeks, we have two chances to mine Hope's past and reclaim lost parts. And it will be exciting work. The first time we can do this is as a congregation, as Anne told us, is this Friday evening. And everyone is invited. We need the seasoned and the new. Since I came to the church just three years ago, I expect to learn, I mean three months ago, I expect to learn a great deal about the church. And those of you who imagine you know the history because you've lived it, may be surprised by unseen information or perspectives. We'll be looking for patterns. We'll be excavating customs and beliefs. We will be able to reclaim forgotten but valued traditions. At the same time, we may discover tired and worn out habits and attitudes that no longer serve us. So I truly encourage everyone to come. Because if we were the chroniclers of Hope Church, we might begin our chapter like this. William Hallway, Polly Hallway, Robert Hendry, Carol Hendry, Lisa Hager, Patricia Nelson, Carol Camp. The retelling would be the list of people who, who, not unlike the tribes of Israel, left their homeland on Peoria at All Souls Church. They weren't leaving under duress, but they were in a search for new possibilities and the reshaping of a religious tradition and peoples in a new part of town. So like the Bible's chronicler, our aim of examining Hope's genealogy is to lift up various tribes in the church, the choir tribe, the men of Hope tribe, the children's religious education tribe, board of trustees tribe, social justice outreach tribe, and even unnamed and unofficial tribes. Another critical goal is to see how these tribes handled adversity. What gave them hope? How did they celebrate? What did they innovate? What was effective leadership? What was not? So returning to the Bible in First and Second Chronicles, they sort out ethnic and geographic limits of ancient Israel. So translated today, our discussions Friday night will examine hope's limits. We will look at how we can best live out our covenant and care for each other while deepening our spirituality. And we might explore how to best navigate embracing political, sexual, class, race, and theological differences to be more inclusive and welcoming. Our size may be part of the discussion on limits. 
I'd make the case that compared to larger congregations, a healthy, smaller congregation can have richer fellowship, richer pastoral care and commitment to the community. Our size allows more involvement in ministry, more people called into service, and greater spiritual depth. Our size is one of our greatest strengths. I know I keep jumping back and forth between the Bible and what we're doing, but back to the Bible, the issues of power and authority were at the heart of the history of the Chronicles, in the Chronicles. It portrays God's will transmitted through the actions of humankind. Even though God is the true king in Chronicles, the authority to exercise power is firmly conferred upon King David and his dynasty. So Friday night, we'll have a similar discussion about power and authority and among members and ministers and hopes past, how that was shared or not, and how that will shape plans for the future. Then a second chance we have to serve as chroniclers will be Sunday, December 8th. That day happens to mark the 45th anniversary of Hope's founding. And earlier, I read the names of the framed document from the original charter that's at the back of the sanctuary. And those list of names proclaim, we the undersigned on this 8th day of December, 1968, do hereby associate ourselves for the purpose of forming a second Unitarian church in the city of Tulsa. We are beholden to these pioneers who were willing to strike out on their own. We are indebted to all who followed over the last four and a half decades. So during worship, we'll celebrate this long-lived accomplishment in song and story and pictures, then move into the fellowship hall to do what we do well, which is eat, drink, and party together. (laughs) Two important pieces of glue. So each of these upcoming church events invites us to take stock, to chronicle all the various versions of Hope's dynamic history. And we will aim to make the work inerrant, inerrant in seeking to be flawless, searching for all aspects of our past. The dark, the light, the joy, the sorrow, We're going to be checking our rearview mirror so we can choose our road and head down it with clarity and purpose. May we lead, not lag. May we reclaim the voice of our prophetic faith to grow into our best selves and our best church community. May it be so.